the way the New Testament uses the title son of Jesus as this office of messianic fulfillment, well, the, the apostles go around preaching in Acts, uh, for instance, you know, they're focused on the resurrection and on Christ's ascension to heaven and that ascension to heaven leading to his enthronement and that enthronement being his claim to universal authority. Uh, you know, Paul says to the Areopagus uh, council in Acts 17, you know, God, now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Um, so it's this one who's been raised, who's been appointed judge, who now commands obedience. In a sense, the title son gets us that whole office of authority that Jesus is presently exercising. One of the most important concepts in Christianity is also one of the least understood. Also, also, one where people might be least likely to ask questions because they feel as if they should already know and understand it even though it's never really been appropriately explained to them so today on the all things all people podcast i'm talking to bobby jameson who is an associate pastor at capitol hill baptist church in washington dc uh, the lead pastor there is a guy named mark deaver who who uh, runs a ministry called nine marks you've probably heard of a fantastic ministry bobby's been a part of that um, he was an editor there uh, he received his PhD from Cambridge in the New Testament, has written a bunch of books, but the one we're talking about today is The Paradox of Sonship, Christology and the Epistle to the Hebrews. Now, that might seem extremely technical, and there's going to be times where you're listening to Bobby talk, and it is very technical. He is an expert on the letter to the Hebrews, which is one of the most, not difficult to understand, but like deep. When you get when you, you, the feeling you get when you read Hebrews is like, wow, I feel like I understand this, but it goes deeper even than that. And so hopefully this conversation with Bobby brings you to that deeper understanding, especially in what Hebrews and the entire New Testament has to say about Christ's sonship. And why does that matter? Why does it matter that Christ was the son of God? And how does that affect his place in the Trinitarian nature of God. These are all things, these are all questions that we should at least be asking. And when non-believers, especially people who are part of other religions, when they come to the table with us, they're going to ask about the Trinity. And they're going to say, especially um, those from Muslim backgrounds, they're going to say, so how can Jesus be God and also God's son at the same time? And so Bobby and I talk about that a little bit. We talk about what the epistle to the Hebrews says in as far as Christ's eternal role as son, but also where he inherited the role as son when he ascended to heaven. See, like that's something that if you just read Hebrews, you might get confused on. So I'm excited for you to listen to this conversation. Bobby is a brilliant guy, and I hope that you go and follow him on social media and go check out his books. All of that is linked in the show notes. He's actually like putting out book after book right now. Um, prolific author, inc incredible uh, rate that which he's writing. And so go and make sure you check him out. And then also go and make sure that you follow all things dot all people on Instagram. That's kind of my social media home. I'm not good at Twitter. I'm not good at Facebook. We have Instagram down though. And so go check us out on Instagram and uh, be on the lookout next couple weeks for some pretty amazing guests. Next week is a worship leader named Carrington Gaines, um, who if you don't know, you're going to 100% love him. Then the week after that might be the biggest guest we've ever had in all things, all people history. And I'm going to wait till next week to tell you about that. Um, 
some guests after that leading into January. Sam Alberry, Stephen Nichols, Brett McCracken, Nathan Finocchio. Um, if you don't know who these guys are, go ahead and check them out. And then once we get into July, we're going to do some fun stuff. But today, what really, really, really matters is our Christian thinker for this week, helping you understand the sonship of Christ, one of the most integral doctrines in the Christian faith, our Christian thinker, Bobby Jameson. Let's do it. My next guest is associate pastor at Capitol Hills Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and before that worked as an editor at Nine Marks. He received his PhD from Cambridge and New Testament and has written many books, including Jesus' Death and His Heavenly Offering in Hebrews and the one that he and I are going to get to discuss today, which is The Paradox of Sonship, Christology in the Epistle to the Hebrews, which we're hoping at this point that we publish this episode will have just been published through IVP InterVarsity Press uh, here in the States. And so it's my honor to have on the show today, Dr. Bobby Jameson. Bobby, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I have to ask too. So if, if somebody, um, I, I, I get a lot of InterVarsity authors on this show and InterVarsity is one of my favorite publishing houses in the States. Um, I was, I had a little bit of confusion when I was first shown your book because you're listed as RB Jameson. <laughs> and then I try and find you through that. And then I find Bobby Jameson it's, and then I find Dr. Jameson. Are we, is this like an NT right? Just, Tom Wright thing? Sure. It's just my academic alter ego. Yeah. I've always been called Bobby, but that just feels a little weird for academic <laughs> publishing. Yeah. So go for the British, you know, J.I. Packer. Yes. Sure. Yes. You okay. DA D. D. Carson. Yeah. Don Carson, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, that's it, the funny thing. You, so you mentioned Carson. I, I always love, because of course I, if I ever met Don Carson, of course, I would just call him Dr. Carson, but it's almost like uh, we all talk about N.T. Wright and D.A. Carson and J.I. Packer. But it's like the people who really know you, of course, laugh and go, oh, that's Bobby. I'll really I'll really know I've made it if somebody actually calls me R.B. in person. You know, <laughs> oh, it's I think it's going to happen. The book is wonderful. Uh, so for those <laughs> listening, the, the paradox of sonship, um, when I saw it in the uh, the publishing catalogs that I get, I, I thought, OK, this seems like something that is one of those topics in biblical studies where um, the lay person, the, the person who hasn't studied the Bible extensively might think that this is over their head, this is out of their reach. But it doesn't take much to figure out that this is a topic that absolutely has to find its way to conversations at the lay level and more and more and more churches. And in the acknowledgments and in the, um, the recommendations of this book, my 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 eyes were immediately drawn to the name Mike Bird, who is a past guest of this show. Um, what is it like writing extensively on Hebrews and then getting to collaborate with somebody like Mike Bird, who I think you had even said you referenced a good bit of his work in preparing for this work? Well, he just um, he was just very kind to share a pre-publication manuscript yeah. okay. uh, of one of his books. So he and I haven't really worked together. I do mm -hmm. appreciate his scholarship. I'm thankful for him. Yeah. Um, and his uh, some of the themes in his book. Jesus, the eternal son would yeah. certainly re resonate with what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And see, and, and of course, having, having his name on the book, I'm sure we'll get a lot of people to, to, to read it be, but yeah, it's, so I read it. Um, and immediately I was brought back to studying the Bible for the first time, seriously in undergraduate. And it's one of those books where I, I kind of wish that I had 
read it in undergraduate studies because uh, you kind of take the reader into a very it's not basic by any means, but it's it's it it draws people into understanding um, what we call Christology in the letter to the Hebrews, which for those listeners who don't know, Christology is maybe most like there's there's few places where it's more present in the New Testament than in the epistle to the Hebrews. So um, you did your doctoral work on this. And then now this is sort of uh, 2.0 of what you did your doctoral. What is it about Christology in Hebrews that has caught your attention all these years? Sure. Thanks for asking. It's kind of a merging of a couple of interests. One certainly is a longstanding interest in Hebrews. So as you mentioned, I wrote my PhD thesis on Hebrews, and this is kind of a follow-up or side project from some of that research. Um, Hebrews is a really rich book, very dense theologically. And it does have, and this is something I started to notice a little more as I worked on my PhD, it does have some of the most explicit incarnational statements in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So just to pick one, uh, here in Hebrews chapter 10, uh, starting in verse 5, it says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired and so on, which is a quote of Psalm 40. So when Christ came into the world, which is articulating one of the purposes of his incarnation, he wasn't just born like the rest of us, although he was truly born as a human, but he came into the world as it were from elsewhere. So just studying Hebrews in, in great detail started highlighting the role of the incarnation and the focus on the person of Christ. And I had, I think in seminary, especially sparked by an elective class with Dr. Steve Wellam uh, on the person of Christ, that had really sparked my interest in studying, especially Christology and the Trinity in more depth. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, it was studying Hebrews and having a longstanding interest in some of those doctrines. And then I think a third ingredient was uh, getting introduced to some current debates in modern New Testament studies about what is the earliest Christology of the New Testament? Yeah. Or is there a kind of adoptionist, quote unquote, layer uh, of New Testament Christology where if you sort of excavate down to the earliest discernible traditions and sources, uh, well, Jesus wasn't really divine, but he, be he attained this exalted mm -hmm. status uh, at his uh, resurrection, exaltation to heaven and so on. Yeah. Uh, somebody like Bart Ehrman has, has presented a pretty popular case about some of those things. This book doesn't directly engage Ehrman very much, but there is a kind of live debate among sort of technical New Testament scholars about uh, what exactly does the New Testament teach about the person of Christ, his divine dignity, uh, and what's the role of his exaltation to heaven in who we understand him to be. And Hebrews has a lot to say about all of that. So it was sort of, it was sort of a way of just bringing together yeah, longstanding interest in Hebrews, a little bit more of a doctrinal interest uh, in New Testament teaching on the person of Christ, and then kind of key debates that are sort of from the broader world of New Testament scholarship, but then intersect Hebrews in some particular ways. Yeah. I, so everything you just said for the listener who, who maybe they, they're not the most avid of, of, of student of biblical studies, I think that what you're painting the picture of is, is some of the questions that we see posed by the letter to, to the Hebrews and some of the things that, of course, are posed throughout all the New Testament are being addressed today. Like you mentioned, Bart Ehrman, I'm in North Carolina. Sure. Um, I, I think his name has been mentioned about as many as many times as any other scholar on this show. And of course, every other, you know, we've had Justin Briarly on here and, and he's, of course, had Bart Ehrman on uh -huh. his show many times. And so when you mention his name and some of the other more prolific non-Christian scholars, 
we begin to hear like what you just said is there's some of these new they're not they're not really new theories but people are beginning to address them in a new way that um but like you said an adoptionist theory where jesus wasn't who we say he is it was uh the early followers in the first couple of hundred years and you address some of those questions um, in a multitude of ways. And to just sum it up for, for the listeners, um, when you look at the letter to the Hebrews, Christ's sonship is, is paramount. I mean, the, the idea of him being the son of God is at the heart and the crux of the matter. And um, throughout time, some of the arguments about what does that really mean, that Jesus is the son, um, and Hebrews actually addresses it in, a, in ways that, could seem contradictory. Um, and you lay it out in a, in a fairly simple way in the introduction to your book, when you basically say, some say that this, that Christ's sonship is something that he has been eternally and a role that he has always fulfilled in his Trinitarian role. Um, and then others say son is a title or an office that Christ was given at his exaltation. And you sort of take a very interesting both and approach, um, which I think is a sign of healthy theology when we don't automatically, you call it a zero sum game, when we don't automatically appeal to the dialectics, um, the extremes, the polarizations. Yeah. Uh -huh. but, for, but for the listener who's entering this conversation, the first question that they might have in their mind is one that they feel like they should have asked at Sunday school like 20 and 30 years ago, which is when we talk about Jesus as the son, um, this is of course, one of the, the, the centerpieces of Christianity, but why is it that sonship is so important in a general understanding and, um, for the, the, for the biblical reader to have an understanding when they come to the Bible of Jesus as the son of God, why is that concept so important? That is a good question. And in a way, I feel like I'd want to try to answer it from two different angles or two different directions. Yeah, that's fine. I love it. Well, and you could start from, uh, let's see, you could start from one of Hebrews uses of the title son, which you could pick up from uh, chapter one, verse four, where it's after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Mm -hmm. And that's a citation from Psalm 2 verse 7, which is a messianic promise to David. So if you, if you start from that use of sonship, son describes uh, the office of Messiah that Jesus exercises, his role as redeemer, his role as the heir of David, the one to bring all of these ancient promises of God to fulfillment. And so son is a way of naming uh, his relationship to the father in the sense of the office he executes, the delegated role of authority, of, of reigning at God's right hand until he puts all enemies under his feet, as Psalm 110 verse 1 puts it. And so son, and this is actually where there are some legitimate uh, exegetical observations by scholars like Bart Ehrman, and they're noticing that uh, Jesus gets called son in conjunction with his resurrection and his ascension and his enthronement in heaven. And actually, with some proper qualifications in place, I actually want to say yes, amen. It's to, the, the New Testament often uses the title son for Jesus to talk about this present role of his present reign. And so actually, to get to your question about kind of impact and payoff for, for the Christian faith, um, 
the way the New Testament uses the title son of Jesus as this office of messianic fulfillment, well, the, the apostles go around preaching in Acts, uh, for instance, you know, they're focused on the resurrection and on Christ's ascension to heaven and that ascension to heaven leading to his enthronement and that enthronement being his claim to universal authority. Uh, you know, Paul says to the Areopagus uh, council in Acts 17, you know, God, now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Um, so it's this one who's been raised, who's been appointed judge, who now commands obedience. In a sense, the title son gets us that whole office of authority that Jesus is presently exercising. So the sort of confidence uh, that we as believers have in Christ's present reign that will be perfected in the future. In a sense, all that's bottled up in the title of son. But from another point of view, and Hebrews also uses the title son in this way, it also reveals his divine identity and specifically an eternal divine relation of origin where he eternally exists from the father. So one of the real distinctive features of Jesus talking about himself, uh, this occurs somewhat in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it occurs especially in John, is Jesus talking about God as my father mm -hmm. or talking about himself as the son in a way that is unique and exclusive. And when you trace down that nuance of sonship, that sense in which the title is used, and Hebrew, Hebrews does this too, it actually leads you back into eternity. It le leads you back into the existence of God and how there is a relationship of generating and being generated, of originating and being originated uh, between the father and the son that is eternal and is the foundation of, of, of Jesus' identity as the Son. It comes before and apart from his incarnation. It's revealed in his incarnation. And actually, like you put it, I'm, I'm, I see a both and in the book of Hebrews, not a zero-sum sort of competitive equation. His eternal divine sonship is the foundation for the kind of authority he exercises in saving us as Messiah. Yeah. So it's, it's so interesting to me because um, I, I work quite extensively in like, comparative religion and so when you sure. talk about the term jesus as the son um and you start traveling around the world you're immediately going to be faced with like an islamic concern um you know most muslims will know the passage from the quran where it says god would have never had a son and i think many christians don't realize kind of how shocking really our belief in christ's sonship is and when we take that understanding to the book of Hebrews and like you mentioned, um, Matthew, Mark and Luke, but especially John, uh, it is very shocking when we begin to understand it. But, you know, it, what I find most interesting is I, I think that uh, for, for many Christians, they have no problem with the understanding that you propose, which is, is very common, which is that Christ's sonship is, is an eternal office that he's always mm -hmm. held. Um, most Christians, I think, to a certain degree, believe that and can even communicate that in some respects. But when they get to the passages in Hebrews that you've already mentioned, where it says that he was ex he was uh, exalted, he went in, he offered the heavenly sacrifice, and and the Father looked at him and said, "You are my son, and today I have begotten you." Um, help help uh, somebody who's not as familiar with the well. I think there's very few people who are as familiar with the epistle to Hebrews as you are. But um, but so for most of us who who haven't studied it quite extensively as you, that phrase, can you unpack that for us then? Because that for the average Christian, if they say they were to talk to somebody who is antagonistic to their faith, and I know you're not an apologist, so um, I'm not asking you to defend necessarily the statement, but help explain that where 
where it is possible, how was it made possible that the father could look at him and say, today I have begotten you and today you have become my son? Sure. Yeah. And this, uh, in, in some ways, in order to give a full answer to that, I'm going to have to go under the hood and look yes. at the sort of exegetical engine yeah. uh, that's kind of driving the book, which is in order to talk about uh, the son who's one with the father and eternally exists as God, in order to say anything about what he became or inherited or obtained, uh, that there'd be any change or anything new to his actions or his existence, we have to start by recognizing that we're ascribing all those things to him in his incarnate state and on the basis of the human nature that he assumed for our sake and for our salvation. And there's different elements of this I sort of tease out, different kind of component parts to understanding what are the entailments of Jesus' incarnation for how we actually kind of unpack these texts? What are the sort of conceptual ingredients in the incarnation that can help give us handles on some of the details of these texts? Uh, so one shorthand that church fathers often used for talking about speaking of Jesus simply according to his divinity and speaking of him with reference to his humanity is a distinction between what they called theology and economy, mm -hmm. not economy, like the exchange of goods and services in a system between people, but economy, like an ordered plan, specifically God's plan of salvation and specifically how that plan of salvation culminates in and is activated by Christ's incarnation. So I would want to line up the you are my son today, I have begotten you, along with all sorts of other becomings. And you could line some of these up in Hebrews. So for instance, uh, there's a whole lot of, we already looked at one became uh, in chapter one, verse four, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Or later on in chapter two, uh, verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That is, he had to become incarnate. Mm -hmm. And he had to become incarnate in order then subsequently to be able to become a high priest and be the mediator and accomplish atonement. Mm -hmm. And so again, the, the incarnation is a decisive becoming. Uh, it's a, it's something genuinely new, at least with respect to this, this human being, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, but it is, and then, then on the basis of that newness of the incarnation, well, he lives a human life. He obeys the father. He's like us in every way, but without sin, as Hebrews chapter four says, he endures suffering. He's perfected through suffering as Hebrews chapter five says. And then again, in, in Hebrews five, nine, it says he became the source of eternal salvation. And so it's not that there was anything deficient or lacking in him. It's not that there was any, anything missing. It's not that he lacked any divine dignity. Uh, but the whole purpose of the incarnation is not that he lacked anything, but that we lacked everything. And so all that he did and took on, he did for our sake and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says. That's kind of a heading that you'd put over all of this. Yeah. So then when, if you go through incarnation, his earthly life, his being perfected through suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to heaven. Well, there's still, what, what's new about that? Well, what's new uh, is, that the, is that Adam's dust is reigning on heaven's throne, mm -hmm. right? What's, what's new about Christ sitting down at God's right hand uh, is not that God is reigning over all things. That's always been true. But that he, the son of God, now in his incarnate state uh, is exercising a total and universal dominion. 
that there's a sense in which he wasn't before, at least according to his human nature, because he's walking around Nazareth and Galilee and Judea. He's doing miracles. He's getting persecuted. He's going hungry. He's sleeping in a boat, right? But now he's installed in power at God's right hand. And in and through his human nature, he is exercising a new universal dominion uh, as the last Adam, now finally fulfilling humanity's destiny. And sorry, here, here I'm borrowing a little bit from Paul and first Corinthians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get back to Hebrews. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, but there is a last Adam uh, yeah. picture going on oh, in Hebrews, sure. like, like yeah. chapter two, where he's, you know, we don't see everything subjected to humanity, but we do see Jesus mm-hmm. and every, everything is subjected to him, although not yet completely. That's in Hebrews two, kind of verses five to nine. Yeah. So then when you get to you are my son today, I have begotten you. I think the begetting is being installed in office. The begetting is a kind of royal enthronement. Uh, just like a, a president is elected, but is only inaugurated on, you know, January 20th, there's a formal installation of office. And I think that's what that language of begetting there is a metaphor for. I do, th- I do think uh, that the doctrine of eternal generation is a biblical doctrine. And I think it's attested in metaphorical images like uh, Hebrews 1.3. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the imprint of his nature. But I think the begetting you are my son, today I have begotten you, doesn't imply that he wasn't the son before, but it's a, it's an, a new installation in office uh, at this culmination of his incarnate saving mission. Yeah, I think for, for many of my listeners, some are probably going to have to go back and listen to everything you just said again, because <laughs> sure. it, 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 was, it, was, it was so um, packed with so much good stuff. And you really, honestly, I think you just summed up in about, five minutes, about 75% of the book, um, because, because he threw, there was a lot there, but for many people, I think you just kind of, um, on their first listen have blown their mind in, in really what centers. I, I think one thing that's missing from a lot of the lay Christians Christology is, I don't, I don't know if it's an understanding of the incarnation so much as it may just be an appreciation for how, um, uh, impactful is i mean there's no appropriate word to describe how important the incarnation is and much of what you're you're writing about in this book and what you just described has to do with christ's incarnation that we see best depicted other in any other place other than hebrews and john one um but yeah yeah, well if i could just interject a comment you might have been going to a different question but uh just if i if you don't mind me interrupting um couple of comments on that. One, I was just reading a Spurgeon sermon this morning, prepping for a passage I'll be teaching in Bible study tonight. And Spurgeon talks about the incarnation as the first note in the gospel scale. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was a nice, because it's, it's foundational, mm-hmm. right? And, and it is a marvel. It is a mystery. Angels, angels worship and sing. And um, so I do think the incarnation is a very crucial doctrine. Uh, it's easy to overlook or downplay. And it is foundational then to all sorts of other things yeah. we need to say about Christ's person and work. And I think one way you can look at it, and I think, I think sometimes uh, there, are, there are theologians that we as evangelicals might not tend to pay as much attention to, people like Irenaeus, Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianzus, Cyril of Alexandria, kind of early church fathers. Yeah. Often what they're able to do really well is kind of articulate and condense and give a sense of the whole sweep of Christ's saving mission from the moment of incarnation through his whole earthly life, you can almost imagine kind of a U shape uh, from that moment of incarnation through his whole earthly ministry to then his 
death, burial, resurrection, ascension, reigning at God's right hand. It's kind of like a necklace where all of these discrete elements are, are fixed on one thread, one string. And you can sort of get a, a clearer picture of it by looking at the whole. Mm-hmm. And some, sometimes I think we, perhaps out of, a, out of a good desire to keep the cross really central, yeah. um, sometimes we could almost be cross-centered in a reductionistic way where we're not as used to thinking about what's the whole shape from kind yeah. of in, incarnation to exaltation. Yeah. Whereas there, there's really important theological muscles to be exercised there yeah. of how do you how do you narrate that whole story? And so, in a sense, that is kind of the structure of my book uh, in some ways, starting with Christ in terms of the actual exegesis, starting with Christ's divine identity and then walking through his incarnate mission, his enthronement in heaven. And what does that all mean? So yeah. it sort of go, goes from his divine identity through the incarnation and his incarnate acts, then to the end. So there is kind of a narrative structure to it. Yeah. Well, and so you interjecting was perfect because you actually kind of began to broach even where I was going to ask. For me, I can remember when I first started, you know, in biblical studies as an undergraduate, and I I've, I was using an Andreas Kostenberger textbook in a John class. And um, and then that led me to, and I, and I hope I don't lose you here, but that led me to Karl Barth and, uh, and, and many other theologians who I began to realize just how serious of a doctrine the incarnation is. And of course, I don't agree with everything that Bart has in his Christology, but um, was it Athanasius and Irenaeus? I have a hard time believing that you started with Athanasius and in, 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 uh, Irenaeus as far as, um, you know, who was it that you were reading sermons, theology, that you began to develop a deeper appreciation for the incarnation? You know, it's funny. I think I'd go way back behind that and say Christmas hymns. Oh, wow. Yeah. I think I'd say, oh, come all ye faithful mm. and um, hark the herald angels sing. And just there, there's so much good theology packed into some real concise turns of phrase, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, yeah. hail the incarnate deity, you know, uh, um yeah, there's, there's, I think in Christmas hymns, there's such a moving sense of, wow, this decisive, marvelous thing has happened. Wow. Uh, reflecting on the incarnation. I've, I've always found those kind of rich, classic Christmas hymns on the incarnation to be really moving. Mm. And, and I think that actually probably got stuck somewhere in my heart and mind um, and kind of waited to develop a little bit more theologically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm trying to think who would have been especially formative. I mean, some, some classic, uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't know who, I'd have a tough time telling you exactly like what came between Christmas hymns and then some, and then some of the yeah. re- resources for writing yeah. this book. But yeah. I will say, I will say in terms of actually forming the resources for this book, one person who was especially catalytic was Cyril of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which I kind of apprenticed myself to Cyril uh, in a critical fashion to kind of learn what he's seeing in the text and what tools he brings to the text and kind of learning how does he get to the conclusions he gets to. And actually, in terms of that both and answer, son who became son, eternal son, messianic son, Cyril gets that exactly right in his commentary on Hebrews. Mm-hmm. So I think Cyril gives a better answer to this key exegetical question than most modern scholars. Mm-hmm. So I think that's actually superior exegesis to what is going on in a lot of technical, academic, modern work today. Yeah, and so so in that sense, I, I it would take too long to sort of trace the mm-hmm. whole path from from Christmas hymns to Cyril. Yeah, but cr- Christmas hymns and Cyril are both important ingredients, and Cyril, of course, shows up a lot more in the book than Christmas hymns. Yeah, well, and and what that does is maybe just maybe somebody 
this is going out in the end of May. So in about six months, we're going to be singing those hymns again. And so maybe some of our listeners uh, will, maybe they'll be provoked even just a little bit further. In Break out own, the classics. Own, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And maybe somebody will go from Oh Holy Night to Cyril and Irenaeus and Athanasius. <laughs> and right there, R.B. Jameson right there too. Um, so, so I mentioned Mike Bird and I saw in his, uh, you know, the note on the book sleeve, uh, and he he's kind of a funny guy um, that he in his recommendation mentioned. Oh, he even talks about Melchizedek, and uh, oh I feel like every time I hear Bird talk, he's talking about Melchizedek. So, um, I know for me, when I was when I was beginning to really study uh, the book the book of Hebrews, um, I think I think Melchizedek gets everybody's attention because they kind of go, well, that, that's out of nowhere. He, he belongs now to the priestly order of Melchizedek. And then of course that takes us back to Genesis. Um, I'm not asking you to explain that in full because that's just probably too much to ask of somebody, but um, for, for, for a listener who go, they, they hear, Oh, there's a guy on the show today who has written quite extensively on Hebrews. I have to ask him about Melchizedek. What is your typical answer to someone say, how is it that Christ now belongs to the priestly order of a guy who shows up in Genesis for like three verses? Yeah, that's a, that's a good <laughs> question. It's a fair question. No Hebrew scholar can totally dodge Melchizedek. Um, let me think for a moment. <laughs> Uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate your thoughtfulness, by the way. And some of these questions I'm hitting you with randomly. A lot of times people just kind of go, all right, here's my, my canned answer. And the fact that you're actually, by the way, for, of course, listeners, they can't tell you are the first person I think ever to actually take their Bible and begin flipping hmm. through it on this show. So that says a lot about you. All right. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I, and I'm just looking at Hebrews chapter seven right now. Yeah. Uh, so I think the, I think there's a couple of things that make Melchizedek an especially important figure to the author of Hebrews. Mm -hmm. One of the key ones is that he is a priest. He's named a priest in scripture, but he does not belong to the ancestry uh, of Levi, which of mm -hmm. course the, the priesthood under the old covenant regulations was, was restricted to that tribe. And so that's a really, it's kind of like, here's this big institution set up in the old covenant. And here's something that's outside of it. And it, it, it comes before in Genesis, but then weirdly, you know, there's no other mention until you get to Psalm 110. Mm -hmm. And of course, Psalm 110 verse one is the most cited passage in the New Testament. Hebrews cites it four times and alludes to it a couple of times. Uh, sit at my right, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus himself quotes this passage in debates late in his ministry. And so what's interesting is, you know, Melchizedek only shows up once in Genesis, but then he shows up in this striking way. That's Psalm 110 verse one. Then in verse four, it's you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So something, something really striking there is, you are my, uh, excuse me, uh, sit at my right hand is a second person direct address. The Lord said to my Lord, mm -hmm. the Lord, the Lord is saying this to somebody who, whom David calls Lord. So that's a direct address. And, and it seems like in the context, verse four has to be the same direct address to the same person. You are a priest forever. So just like Melchizedek is a king and a priest, that's how he's introduced uh, in, in Genesis 14. So also this figure whom David is calling his Lord in a vision is given this kingly role, sit at my right hand, and is called a priest. You're a priest forever. 
after the order of Melchizedek. So right there, you've got someone uniting in one person, a priestly and a kingly role. And I think uh, I can't reconstruct exactly how the author of Hebrews got right, all this. Yeah. I think probably some of it's coming from Jesus. Maybe some of it's coming from the other apostles. But I definitely think the author of Hebrews, it, it, to, to put it really bluntly, a, a, just a slight overstatement. What's unique in Hebrews is that like so many New Testament authors, he's really focused on Psalm 110 verse 1. But then he kept reading and he got really excited about verse four of that Psalm too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's the kind of main, you know, that Jesus unites in himself, this Royal office and also priestly office. He is a priest. Uh, he's even a high priest. He even offers himself as the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I think that gave a kind of, if you understand Psalm 110 to be about the Messiah, here's a direct scriptural proof text for understanding that Messiah also to be a priest. And, oh, by the way, he's not descended from Levi, which, which Jesus wasn't. He's descended from Judah. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the combination of those two things is what's really crucial. That's Hebrews' main interest in Melchizedek. Now, there's all sorts of other stuff, right? He brings Melchizedek in mm -hmm. in, some, in some pretty interesting ways, uh, kind of expounding Genesis 14 before he gets to Psalm 110. But I'll leave it to you if you want to <laughs> press me to go there. No. Well, I think that's I think that's enough to get people to open up to, <laughs> in their study Bibles to to Hebrews, and then also, of course, um, to look into to your work. Um, so we've we've continually mentioned, of course. Um, we're, this this whole conversation, just like your your book and much of your work in academia, has centered around Hebrews. And in if somebody hasn't figured it out by now, they will when after this interview, they open up their their Bibles to Hebrews and begin to read through it, and they will figure out how lofty of a Christology mm -hmm. Hebrews is. And it's such an interesting book. And so the second question that I feel is if my friends who are also in biblical studies and who studied with me in school will just absolutely assail me if i don't ask you as an expert as an expert oh, as a no, student of hebrews uh, i is, see this one coming of course you do uh because all the listeners too i mean i i you know do you think it's possible I'll, I'll start off by this do you think it's possible for us to know who the author of the letter oh, is? i think it's very hard to know okay yeah yeah now do you, hard now, to know. now i would agree with that do you have a theory no, not really. That's a good answer. <laughs> good. <laughs> well, that tells me, that tells Sorry. me. How, no, no. See, okay. That actually makes me feel more comfortable. And for, for listeners, because I, one of the things I appreciate so much about your work, having it being newly introduced to it, but um, now being somebody who will certainly follow your work through whatever else you write in this field and then nine marks and your work at Capitol Hill. Thank um, you. Is um, not a hesitancy, but a willingness to sit in tension between those things that oftentimes we attribute to a zero sum game. And for listeners, what I mean by that is in biblical studies and biblical scholarship, there's this pressing need, it seems sometime to come down and make a hard stance on something and um, reading the paradox of sonship. Um, it, it, I, I've quickly figured out, Oh, this guy does not give into that same tension so so your your ability to say no i don't really think i know who wrote it um tells me that 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 is probably pervasive through much of your through much of your studying and writing so well, i appreciate that and i think i think two very important teachers of mine have both modeled that for me one is tom schreiner and the other is mm -hmm. simon Ga simon gathrickle who yeah. su supervised my phd i would say the they forward, both, yeah 
He did. It was very kind of him. They they both model a sort of willingness to follow the text wherever it goes, and and a real sense of not wanting to say more than the text says. Uh, a, a real kind of um, submission to the burden of proof and, and burden of the evidence, and not mm. wanting to not wanting to go beyond the evidence. So I think I was yeah. well well apprenticed in those. Uh, hopefully, a kind of proper humility before the text. Although, if I can just come back around and make one comment from the other direction, there is a sense in which this book is making a. From a, from a New Testament scholarship world kind of point of view, the book is making a pushy and provocative claim. It is sort of picking a fight, mm -hmm. which is saying, actually, Hebrews is saying essentially the same thing about Jesus as the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition. Mm -hmm. They're identifying precisely the same person. They're ascribing to him precisely the same divine and human characteristics and the same sort of scope and shape of a salvation he accomplishes. And one thing that New Testament scholars tend to do uh, for a variety of complex historical and intellectual reasons is to try to is, is to always kind of um, prioritize uh, an evident difference between, oh, well, the New Testament says this, and only later did the church mm -hmm. develop these doctrines and so on and so forth. And, and, and I'm not trying to uh, erase any differences of con conceptual idiom or certain kinds of intellectual refinement that took place. But, but in a way, uh, this is also a, a pushy, punchy kind of book in saying, actually, hey, New Testament guys, um, it's looking like Hebrews is saying pretty much the same thing as Chalcedon. Mm -hmm. And and uh, some scholars, of course, are willing to acknowledge that, but uh, it's it's a little bit of a challenging claim because so often those types of later creedal definitions and formulations are just sort of sort of shunted sideways. Yeah. Oh, that's not our business. That that doesn't really have any light to shed on the text of scripture. And mm -hmm. so I'm trying to sort of uh, I guess maybe it does play to a similar intellectual instinct. I'm trying to bring together things that scholars often sure. want to keep keep separate. Well, and what I find interesting is that, and I and I find that really good scholarship sometimes looks at the camp that it's coming out of and saying, let's make sure to not have missed something that is there. And so for some scholars who stop short of, of uh, marrying the two sentiments of Christ's sonship, and they say, no, he, sonship is just something that was from eternity past, but then also looking at um, the airmen's, the so, the so many others who say, no, this is something that was developed over time. And like I said, sitting in that tension, I, I very much appreciate that. And so for listeners who, who want to find out more, um, the link to the book through InterVarsity is, is in the show notes. Also, uh, Dr. Jameson's Twitter, which you're fairly active on Twitter. Um, and I've appreciated that. Um, make sure to check that out. And, um, and, so, and also, too, just if you're in the D.C. area, um, we failed to mention uh, Pastor Mark Deaver um, and the work at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. And so if you're in the, if you're in the D.C. area, um, go make sure to at least check them out. If you don't have a church home, um, find your way Ten. there. Yeah. 10.30 on Sunday morning. 10.30 on Sunday mornings. Yeah, wonderful. So, so Dr. Jameson, your time is extremely valuable, I know. So I'm very appreciative that you've given us some of it today. And I, I, I very appreciate the book and uh, excited to see what it does in the kingdom. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate it.